process. And I think, you know, we have lots of students here in IT, there's lots of individuals that think about contagion, how, you know, sort of certain behavior uh, spills onto others. And so I wanted to touch on the reflection problem sort of very early on in this class because, you know, it is very, very difficult. You can't just sort of, you know, regress an individual's, you know, sort of outcome on, you know, some group characteristics because there could be a host of, of uh, you know, distinct channels by which, you know, that parameter could be, uh, could be estimated. So we'll, we'll talk about that today. Uh, we'll jump into Stata a little bit as well. Uh, Stata is, um, you know, for reduced form work is my sort of preferred, uh, you know, sort of statistical uh, package. Um, and so we're going to simulate data uh, today uh, and just help us understand why, you know, a simple control function approach when one has a system of equations and simultaneity uh, may not be enough. And so we're going to be very clear. You know, we will specify what the DGP is, which we rarely get to do, right? Like, which we never get to do. Um, you know, in the real world, we don't know what the DGP is, uh, the data generating process. And so we'll be able to see how close, you know, we can sort of get to the true parameters. Um, and then we'll wrap. And I do have to, you know, sort of forewarn, I always feel like our classes are going to be shorter. Sometimes they're longer because uh, we never know how a discussion will go. I do have a hard stop today at 2.30 because my daughter is sick. So um, I have to take her to the doctor. So uh, we'll, we'll do a hard stop at 2.30 and we'll play a break. Uh, you know, I'll kind of gauge your heads and sort of see how much you're bobbing uh, to discern when we, when we take a break. Sounds good? All right. Let's do this without further ado. What's that? My daughter is sick today. Coming, right? Um, Okay, uh, and my wife is like nowhere to be found, so uh, she's in meetings all day, <laughs> so it's on me. All right, so agenda today, um, quick review of simultaneity, omitted variable bias, reverse causality. You know, one of the big goals of this course is to uh, develop our vocabulary surrounding identification concerns and it not to be a simple, uh, you know, knee-jerk either response or attack uh, from you by saying, well, I think you have an endogeneity problem here in your empirical, your empirical setup, right? I want to be very clear, like, what do we mean by an endogeneity problem? Um, an endogeneity problem uh, is any time you have, uh, you know, a, a variable that is correlated with your you know, variable of interest. It is not fully exogenous. It is on the right, it is in the error term, which also means that it is part of, you know, the data generating process as part of the, the, the model that you, you care about estimating, right? So I wanted to, but you know, these problems can arise through a host of different channels, so we're going to take a quick treatment of that. Um, did, did, did some of you get a chance, thank you for this, did some of you get a chance to look through the, the website as well? The correlation or causation? Good, we'll sort of jump up on to there because, my goodness, um, you know, I think it is fantastic that we have, you know, sort of science journalists uh, at the same time. Um, you know, I think they want to make our research always much more interesting. I shouldn't say that. Much more definitive than it actually is. Um, and also, there's just a lot of junk research that's out there that quickly gets uh, scooped up by by media, and you know, uh, a causal interpretation quickly emerges between you know variation between two variables of interest. Um, so we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll then um, go through this example within Stata and then uh, wrap up with sort of state dependence, reflection, and talk about, uh, talk about the Sasserdotti uh, paper. Okay. Uh, and for those of you that are, that are new then as well, uh, I'm a professor here uh, at Scheller. Um, 
I did my PhD at uh, the Rotman Business School, the University of Toronto. I did most of my coursework in I/O, but the, the, the PhD was more or less in, a, in applied econometrics. Um, a lot of my research is majority of my research is on the economics uh, of, of innovation, and I'm faculty here in the Strategy and Innovation uh, uh, Group, uh, where I publish in sort of a mixture of uh, management, economics, and sometimes science-oriented uh, outlets. Okay, so that's that's me. Uh, let's jump in. Okay. Uh, so one thing we one thing we discussed last week was you know one of the the secondary goals that I have for this course as well is for us to start to develop uh, an an etiquette surrounding empirical practice uh, something that we can fall back on that we should hold ourselves to uh, in terms of best practices in producing uh, defensible empirical work but that we too then should start to demand of others through the review process, uh, et cetera. And you know, within this etiquette, we're gonna sort of come back to it uh, constantly sort of week after week, um, more defensible, more transparent, more appropriate uh, empirically oriented papers have a, a very clear research question, you know, that should go without uh, saying, a description of what the causal inference problem is um, in the sense that uh, we often are estimating uh, or we're sort of regressing some type of outcome on choice variables or uh, variables, uh, you know, equilibrium level uh, variables. You know, what is the causal inference problem that arises uh, by running a naive regression? Third, uh, describing what the ideal uh, unconstrained experiment would be, right? If you had no IRB concerns, if you had no data constraints, what experiment would you structure in order to, you know, identify, uh, you know, the, the parameter, the parameter of interest? I want to make sure that I see you as well. Don't, don't worry, I'm, I'm All right, good. Uh, <laughs> disconcerting when I can't see everyone. Um, right? What the ideal unconstrained experiment is, uh, you know, we'll talk a lot uh, about this in class. This shouldn't always make it on the paper, but you should always, I think, think through this. It allows you to identify questions that just might be fundamentally unanswerable versus those that are just very difficult to, to answer, uh, right? Uh, you should not write a grant um, asking for you know, $500,000 to sort of you know, run this massive experiment if it ultimately is not an identifiable uh, answer. The funding agencies, taxpayers, you know, everyone will thank you uh, for not you know, writing that grant uh, application. Explain then your identification strategy uh, and the key maintained uh, assumptions therein. To the extent possible, test those maintained assumptions. Right? We saw that last week uh, with the um, um, Kruger. Thank you, the Alan. I was like angriest. Uh, the, uh, the Alan Kruger uh, piece on uh, computer usage, right, and uh, and wages with, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the Pishke uh, pushback on, you know, if the, if the maintained assumptions uh, within that piece is that there is no sorting between the types of jobs and the types of uh, tools one uses, one also shouldn't see, you know, positive sorting into, like, pencil usage, right? So, like, testing those maintained uh, assumptions uh, only further bolsters uh, the claims, right? Um, and allows you, you know, gives a little bit more uh, credibility that you know those maintained assumptions hold. Use the simplest possible estimation methods, uh, which again, you know, a little controversial. You know, we'll talk about experiments next week, right? You know, a really clean, balanced experiment 
you just need to run t-tests, right? And it is the most uh, sort of transparent and you know rewarding and refreshing exposition uh, of results that you can you can provide as opposed to um, you know moving into sort of something structural without being overly transparent as to what you know uh, what all the assumptions are in there. This is not to say that you know more complex methods are inappropriate, sort of not at all. Um, I think the, the low-hanging fruit to producing more defensible papers quite often comes with simply having a better identification strategy as opposed to using, um, you know, sort of more, uh, you know, more sophisticated, uh, more sophisticated estimators. So we're going to rely a, a fair amount on OLS, even with this in this course, even with you know dichotomous dependent variables. Uh, we'll talk about you know other types of data, you know, sort of uh, duration data, survival data later on in the course, uh, count data, for example, some Poisson models. Uh, but for the most part, you know, OLS is still uh, a fairly strong workhorse. We have to just be very clear as to like when um, you know. You know, these, these blue uh, violations uh, exist, right? So use the simplest possible estimation methods. Again, recall that the objective in writing a defensible, you know, a good research paper is a defensible one where, you know, you are able to both defend your approach and your technique, not only to yourselves, because you should always be your strongest critics, uh, but to others, to reviewers, to anyone who's skeptical. This is where, you know, the simplest possible estimation uh, methods hold. You're ho at least holding that constant. No one's going to quibble about the asymptotics of OLS, right? Uh, those are sort of very, very uh, well established, right? Um, and then lastly, discuss the economic and statistical uh, significance always of your uh, parameters. Um, talk about, you know, what, what, what size the significance. Uh, is this an under or overpowered study? Uh, again, we're going to talk about power tests a little bit when we talk about experiments, right, within development. Uh, very much first order. I think for most individuals that, um, you know, for most social scientists that run more reduced form style uh, regressions, it's uh, you know, power calculations are almost an, an afterthought. And there are many relationships where um, you know the null in and of itself is very interesting, and might and one might not want to reject uh, the null. But it's very difficult to sort of reject the null when you have a point estimate of you know 0.7 or an elasticity of like 0.7. That's just imprecisely estimated. That's not really a zero effect, right? And so really thinking about that's just an underpowered study most likely. Um, so thinking about um, what power looks like, what size, and sort of significance. All right. So that's kind of going to be our our etiquette that we are going to try to you know, the, the standard that we're going to hold these papers to, the standard that we're going to sort of try to hold ourselves to is, and sort of develop uh, this etiquette, and then will also be used for um, your own research papers, the back-end kind of research papers, which will be the assignment, uh, sort of the, the final um, project for this for this class. All right. So, omitted variable, um, bias, simultaneity, and reverse causality, right? What is omitted variable bias? So, imagine the specification um, where we regress uh, y on x, um, and you know, sort of some parameter beta and an error term u, uh, and there is also some uh, variable you know, z, um, such that you. This is really awful, isn't it? Well, uh, actually, you know, let me try something. 
Let me try changing my resolution. Let's see if that will work. There we go. There we go. It's my fault all along. We just won't be able to see anything anymore. Um, there we go. Wait. <laughs> So it's a win for the day. All right. Okay. Uh, so we have y is equal to you know sort of x beta plus u. There is some variable z uh, such that u is equal to z plus uh, e. Right. Now, the issue arises if you know x and z are correlated. Right. So this is um, this is not quite yet you know the omitted variable. Right. Um, because we can have a number of variables that are omitted from y, right? There might be actually a host of variables that sit within u. That in and of itself, in and of itself is not a problem, right? It only starts to become a problem when our variable of interest x is correlated with a z, right? Um, so then a result, you know, the expectation of xu is both uh, the expectation of x times uh, z, so that where there is sort of this positive correlation, uh, and xe greater than, uh, or both sort of greater than uh, zero. And so the question is, you know, does an omitted variable, uh, you know, matter if it is exogenous? It does not, right? This does not matter uh, for bias, um, since, yeah, x times z is equal to zero. So. We can have a host of other, let's sort of think about this another way. You might actually see sometimes in a seminar, um, someone who's sort of unsophisticated, uh, who hasn't thought about etiquette, who hasn't really sort of thought about causal inference, and say, well, you know, that is all fine. There's a host of other variables that are also important in explaining why. You'll hear this. Right? It's like, well, you know, what about this? This also, you know, this also affects growth, and you haven't, you know, sort of controlled for it. What they're simply saying is, there is some z which is in u, and it should be in your model. No, it doesn't, right? Their concern now is, and this concern is rarely sort of articulated, but you know, the omission of this variable leads to some bias in your estimate of beta. It only matters, right, if this variable is also correlated with you know, your regressor of interest. And that, you know, sort of that secondary claim is rarely made within seminars. It's simply saying, well, this is also an important variable within this function, but if it's uncorrelated with our regressor of interest, right, it does not matter. It does not affect bias, but it does affect efficiency. Okay? You're going to get a more precise estimate of beta the fewer things that are in you. Right? Uh, and this also, I think, is something that is, is you know, sort of often missed in a first-year sort of econometrics course, just yeah, or in, in applied work, what the real difference between you know, sort of efficiency and bias uh, is. Um, yeah. There are some estimators that are inherently sort of less efficient, and so one might care much more about having you know, um, additional, you know, sort of this vector of, of, of z variables in your specification to help with 
uh, estimating, right, with, to help with efficiency, but it will not affect uh, bias. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry if this is a naive question. So what is the difference between multicollinearity and omitted variable? Okay. Um, so multicollinearity uh, simply exists where you have a number of variables, right, within this, we can make this a matrix as well, right, so this X matrix and this is sort of a B vector. Um, where there just isn't enough variation that emerges between your, uh, between your variables. Um, and it makes statistical inference much more problematic. It does not have, you know, it is somewhat orthogonal to this issue of identification. The rank of XP, no, uh, the mathematical condition for that is for multicollinearity is that the rank of the regressive matrix is going to be uh, less than the full rank. It'll not the full rank. Yeah. That's it. Right. And part of that also, I mean, you rarely ever have sort of perfect multicollinearity. Otherwise, you know, this is also why OLS is a little bit nice, right? You just you can't invert that matrix. Um, you can't take, you know, you can't take x transpose x. Um, whereas a maximum likelihood, you could have your estimator, you know, you play around with tolerance and then continue to sort of move up this slope and then just hang out forever and it, you, know, you could be in a local maxima. Uh, they are distinct. I think you know, a number of fields care more or less about multicollinearity. Um, I tend to not care about multicollinearity. <laughs> I think in practice, um, multicollinearity is a symptom uh, of trying to you know, control, you know, it's, it's typically sort of a symptom of a control function approach in dealing with identification as opposed to thinking explicitly about what the variation of your key uh, covariate of interest uh, actually is. Uh, but it will suppress, um, you know, it will suppress the ability to find any significance um, because you will not have any co sort of covariation between um, it and other variables. Because the variables are correlated, highly correlated. That's, that's right. Why. That's right. So normally how would you argue an omitted variable is extraordinary? Is Exogenous. An omitted variable is exogenous. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, so okay. that it's um, that it's exogenous to to x, mm -hmm. right? So that they're uncorrelated with one another. Um, you know, this is where you have to use some fairly strong, um, you know, you sort of rely on you rely on theory. Um, it's um, you know, this is why you know when we talk about the you know, the etiquette, I don't. You know, this, this course, I think a less useful version of this course can, would be uh, a simply more, you know, sort of technical treatment of your econometrics uh, sequence and thinking about various tests that one can conduct. What I think is potentially more useful is thinking through the intuition uh, that arises in being able to make a plausible, and I'll come back again to this notion of, you know, defendable, um, claim that you know these omitted you know an unomitted variable is sort of uncorrelated with uh, you know with X um, but you have to be able to make you know you have to be able to make the claim and I think every you know every good paper uh, in my mind uh, of you know sort of applied um, you know applied econometric paper will have an, an alternate explanations section, right? Which really sort of gets at, um, you know, 
the heart of what the identification challenge really is, the fact that the exact same variation of the data could be explained by a host of, of, of theories, and then moving forward with various tests, not econometric tests or statistical tests, um, but possibly you know, sort of placebo tests to sort of rule out one explanation over the, uh, over the other. Uh, you know, in general, someone is always going to be able to come up with or in practice, you know, I think someone is always going to be able to come up with an explanation of some variable that is not within your specification uh, that is both, you know, sort of correlated with your outcome as well as your variable uh, of interest. And so, you know, thinking about exogenous variation in your X variable is, you know, if your covariate of interest is the most defensible way to sort of tackle these omitted variable concerns. Does that make sense? I have a related question. Yeah. Um, in in another case where actually you have a good prior about the relationship between X and Z, mm -hmm. and you estimate the naive model, mm -hmm. and then you, you can have a uh, an intuition about the direction of the bias, mm -hmm. right? And it can, that can be informative in the sense that it can give you. Um, a very interpretation of the beta coefficient telling you if it's a lower bound and, or, or upper bound depending on... Yep, on that's, exa that's exactly right. Okay. Um, you know, if you were trying to sort of show, you know, directionality, um, you know, let's say a naive regression, um, you know, uh, let's say a naive regression shows, you know, sort of a, a, a negative correlation um, a uh, yeah, negative correlation between, uh, actually, let's, let's think of uh, one of my own sort of uh, papers right now. We're looking at, um, at wages in uh, brick and mortar uh, retailers and the inter introduction of a fulfillment center uh, by Amazon within sort of a geographic uh, region. Um, and the big concern is that, well, either there's, you know, sort of negative selection into these regions where Amazon is, you know, sort of selecting regions that are already economically depressed, uh, and that's where they're going to be able to find um, possibly, you know, sort of lower wage workers, or, uh, you know, they're trying to uh, build these fulfillment centers in order to optimize distribution to affluent uh, individuals who are much more likely to be Amazon Prime members, in which case there's positive selection into these, into these neighborhoods. So we find, um, you know, sort of a, a fairly sort of strong uh, effect on the establishment of a fulfillment center on the wages of brick and mortar uh, employees, um, but we also show that there's a lot of positive selection actually into economic regions. So Amazon fulfillment centers moves into economic areas that are denser, that are growing much quicker, and so you know, that is one throng in our identification strategy. Um, to sort of argue that there's actually positive selection, and so our negative uh, effect um, is quite possibly upwardly, uh, upwardly biased, and that actually might even be larger. Now, this helps you for simply trying to sort of establish some relationship. Mm -hmm. It still is second best because we should always care about like these parameters of, of interest, right? We don't want to just sort of show that something affects something else. Uh, you know, presumably policymakers have a variety of, of choices uh, to make, and so understanding the elasticities of each of these choices is, is important, but that's a first step towards showing that this isn't, isn't maybe just, um, not spurious, but that uh, the bias is working against you, uh, so that there really is something there. Uh, so that's a great point. Yeah. All right.
Um, now again, you know, if you can have another variable again, uh, let's call it, you know, z prime, uh, that is correlated with x, but if it's not in u, i.e., it's not part of the specification, doesn't it doesn't matter. It's no longer an omitted variable, um, right, of of our uh, of our key specification um, or the specification we care about. Yeah. Can I just like give a quick question? Like it's coming from experience, so like. Uh, so there are cases like where like I I um, I have set up x's that's related to y and that's just like um, that's like solid and I include some set of like z's that's unreal that's seemingly unrelated to x's. Okay. And suddenly um, this z and some of the x's lose significance. Okay. And the significance like adds up to the other x's that has been pretty much um, constant over the set of other like models. So. In, the, in such cases, like how can I interpret this? Um, so I didn't 100% follow that. Um, one more time. So I'm um, so like um, so I have a y and my x is like my trip like one of the x is my, like my treatment and okay. I have a, a set of controls that just add in for just like um, seeing like if like, like just just like for testing. Okay. And I add some like z's that seemingly unrelated to one of my x's like like, like x. Like that's unrelated to X, and once I add the Z's, the Z's and like X both lose significance, but the treatment effects like goes away. Does the parameter estimate change? The treatment effects is, but the treatment effects like like is enhances. So it loses significance, but how does the treatment effect like the 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 coefficient increases? The coefficient increases, and the significance of like the X's and the Z's go away, and it's just really weird because. If these are statistically insignificant, like why? Uh, so the like, two things that sort of come to mind. Uh, one is it, it doesn't seem like it's seemingly is sort of unrelated because if okay. it is seemingly unrelated, like it shouldn't yeah. be in of there. Uh, and it shouldn't like move stuff around. Second, it seems like it's really really late, related, and it might be a multicollinearity issue. So I'd look at the correlation between those two variables, okay. especially given that the coefficient is increasing, mm -hmm. and then your standard errors are are flaring up. Um, which seems that there's there's very little sort of co-variation between the two, so we can talk about. Um, I was like found it really weird that like the effect like goes like goes like like goes to like treatments. Um, yeah. 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 I've seen one more thing with such kind of variations. You might be having some one value in that z variable which is very off from rest of the distribution. Oh. Maybe one few values, one or two values, very off from the rest of the distribution. Mm -hmm. So maybe you need to exclude those values by giving proper reasoning why you should include exclude that. Okay. Then it might improve. I had such similar instance earlier. All right. So I, you know, I don't know sort of what, if you have any sort of fixed effects uh, in there as well. Like a lot of this can come down to like small cell sizes, mm -hmm. which you know we're going to think a lot of. Um, you know, your variation might be coming off of just a handful of instances, which. Uh, is never a good idea, um, and it tends to result in sort of just very sort of sporadic uh, estimates, but also you know sort of spurious. Uh, I, I think it could just be a multicollinearity because like this is supposed to be a balance sample. Okay. Yeah. So um, we can talk. We can talk. Yeah, about of course. Um, but yeah, those would be the two things that that come to mind. Okay. Uh, and so again, why does it matter that? Um, you know the expectation uh, of, of x and z uh, is you know not equal to uh, zero because z is unobserved. It's not because they're correlated, but because it's part of u, uh, which I just mentioned, right? Uh, and we're we can think of uh, selection bias uh, as a type of 
uh, omitted uh, a type of omitted variable bias. All right, um, you know, I always like to look at you know, murder and ice cream are always positively correlated. Um, I hope they don't cause one another. Um, you know, uh, the uh, you know, the want to. The um, you know, uh, most likely omitted uh, variable is just you know how attractive it is to be outside. Um, so what is simultaneity? Uh, this applies to any equilibrium uh, data generating process. Uh, thinking about static and dynamic games, any sort of relationship between sort of supply and demand. Um, you know, thinking about you know taking something a little bit more you know sort of sociological uh, in in orientation. You know, a very important construct within sociology is the notion of, of status, right? Which is socially constructed, but um, much status can be a function of uh, latent characteristics of quality, uh, but quality also could be a function now. Uh, of, of, of status, so higher status uh, individuals um, uh, could have uh, could have acquire a higher quality as well. Um, you know what is what is reverse causality? Uh, on the other hand, um, you know reverse causality and simultaneity are, are sort of closely uh, related, but this tends to be where we have you know some type of selection in uh, to outcomes, right? So we see windmill rotation uh, and and wind. Um, we know from you know sort of theory that the wind calls, causes the windmill rotation, uh, whereas quite often you'll see a windmill move and then you'll feel the wind and you'll think, my goodness, uh, that windmill rotated uh, that wind. And so you know having some uh, some theory in order to sort of disentangle um, that is actually really uh, really important. Or you know the ideal experiment would be have you know some type of vacuum, right? Because actually uh, absent theory, it would actually be very difficult to think about you know. Uh, simply using observational data, whether or not wind actually causes windmill to turn, or you know, a windmill actually causes uh, wind to turn. Uh, we can think about you know M&A activity as well, uh, and you know organizational uh, organizational learning, something that is a little bit more of interest to uh, strategy research. Is it that uh, you know organizations that uh, are simply more able to incorporate different businesses uh, into their uh, you know, into their organization, engage in more uh, M&A activity, or is it that you know, simply engaging the process of acquiring firms, the M&A activity uh, causes uh, increased organizational uh, learning, right? So, which which is causing which? Um, this isn't inherently um, you know uh, an equilibrium uh, level uh, outcome, but somewhat uh, uh, you know very much sort of affected by reverse causality, which is causing uh, which is causing which. Uh, which we'll talk uh, a bit about as well when we talk about, um, you know, sort of state dependence. Um, okay. So, has anyone seen this XCKD comic? I hope so. One of my favorites. All right. So, can everyone read that? What's the joke? People aren't laughing here. <laughs> I got them it. What's the joke? Class helped. Class helped? Yeah. Well, why does it say, well, maybe? That's the joke. <laughs> no, the joke's much deeper, actually, right? Like, that's a correlation effect, right? 
Um, what's another plausible explanation for that? Right? Someone who's really interested in, let's say, causal inference is going to do a host of reading. They're going to be talking to lots of other individuals. They might take a class, right? But they're going to be engaged in a number of different approaches in which, you know, to learn about the difference between correlation and causation, of which taking a class is one of many approaches. And so, you know, we sort of see, we, it sort of, it, it's this post hoc fallacy that we quite often fall into, right? Post hoc ergo proctor hoc, right? As a result, therefore because, right? Because someone took a statistics class and they were, you know, they were curious about the distinction between correlation and causation, that must have, you know, um, yeah, provided that in, enlightenment. And so it said, yeah, sounds like the class helped. And he said, well, maybe, right? <laughs> and it's not that, you know, the individual now knows, um, uh, you know, the individual now knows that correlation is not equal to causation, but it could have come about from simply reading something else or talking to someone else, and it wasn't actually the class, right? Um, People got the joke now? Good. Is it a better joke now? <laughs> it's a much better joke now, right? Uh, and that is the whole problem. Like, you know, we, uh, we're trying to sort of, you know, firms are trying to, uh, you know, sort of maximize some type of objective function. They try, like, a host of different things, and we say, oh, like, that must have helped. We don't know. We don't know what the counterfactual is, right? We don't know what the counterfactual is for these individuals. What is the ideal experiment for those two individuals? Or for, you know... For individual, you know, bald, the bald individual. What's the ideal experiment? You get this individual's twin, right? Don't make him take the class and then compare. That's right. They read and they do everything else the same, but one gets the class and one doesn't, right? That allows us to sort of start to think about the counterfactual, because the counterfactual here is basically, you know, the other, you know, long-haired individual. Um, Right is I like how gender neutral uh, they are. Right, uh, you know, long-haired, long-haired individual. Um, simply, the counterfactual there is the pre-period, where there's a host of activities that are being, you know, that are sort of taking place in the post-period, and so you know, what we did before is not an appropriate uh, counterfactual. Okay, yeah. If there's one thing you take away from this course, it's this comic. Right, but to but to really think sort of carefully about you know what the counterfactual looks like, and that is the entire point uh, of this exercise of thinking about what the ideal experiment is. What is it? You know, we always say ceteris paribus, right? Like let's just like let's hold everything constant. No, no, no. What explicitly do we want to hold uh, constant in order to gain some insight? All right. Okay. Let's uh, let's pull up uh, let's pull up this website. All right. Uh, watching too much TV can kill you. This is a good. I feel like the you know the English tabloids are always just a fantastic source uh, for these type of. You know, um, people who watch too much TV are at risk of suffering deadly blood clots. More than five hours a day doubles pulmonary embolism risk. Study finds. The solution. <laughs> Stand up occasionally and drink some water. <laughs> what, um, you know, we see studies like this sort of all the time, right? So before I jump into favorites, let's really, you know, we'll identify the article. What is the research question? What are the findings? And what are the threats to identification, right? So 
what is the research question? You know, this... Um, um, are they trying to... Yeah. Jesus. Look at these. Easy tabloids. Easy. Yeah, exactly. I should have gone in. Uh, yeah. The amount of cookies I'm getting from yeah. this class alone is going to track me around. Uh, blood clot medicine. What is the, I mean, are, do these researchers, and again, I don't want to throw any type of, you know, sort of researchers uh, sort of under, under the bus, um, but they, I think they care about a causal link, right? Does, you know, watching more television cause you to have adverse health effects? That's actually kind of like a first order question, right? What is the, is there a concern with the interpretation of a causal link here? What might it be? What are the threats to identification, uh, you know, of this study? Is this like is this an RCT, right? A randomized controlled trial, yeah, right? This is not an RCT, right? Uh, this is clearly using some observational data. What might an alternate explanation be, or what might a threat to identification be? That like watching TV is correlated with sitting down, so instead of like it might not be the TV viewing itself that's the problem. Okay. So creating like, a possible relation between those two things. Okay. What else? A reduced, reduced activity. Mm -hmm. Earlier you were spending five hours doing something else, but now you're sitting in front of the box. So you reduce other activity, and that probably increases the risk of... That still sounds kind of causal, though, right? Like, that's just a different channel, but it's still saying that, like, TV is causing you to have sort of worse health outcomes because you're not, you know, walking around. Okay. Could right? But the data is just not randomized, so... Everyone who's been watching the TV already has horrible health, and then everyone who was not watching the TV is there. We go. Shit. Right? Uh, what if, like, you're on, um, you know, workplace disability because, like, you hurt, like, you hurt your back, right? Or you, like, you just can't physically work, right? So you now have sort of worse healthcare outcomes, you know, to begin with, and as a result, you actually have a lot of time on your hand, and so you watch a lot more television. Right? I do think it's a very specific group, you know, five hours of television a day. Uh, might, there might be some like, adverse selection in that group of individuals that already might be at higher health risk. And so this is, again, just a sample selection uh, issue or maybe an omitted, again, recognizing that an omitted variable is a type of sample selection issue, uh, maybe, you know, uh, work ability or, you know, one would want to, you know, sort of control for, uh, you know, some pre-period uh, health condition, right? Um, and think about what selection into watching five hours of television is also potentially associated with. Okay? All right. Uh, I can't. Well, once I'm in, uh, once I'm in uh, slideshow mode, it doesn't want, it doesn't want to let me out. Okay. What, uh, anything else? Uh, a lot of stuff on sex here. Uh, oh, this one. Studies suggest Southern slavery turns white people into Republicans 150 years later. <laughs> uh, this one's pretty good. Um, teenage sex leads to bad moods in later life. Um, right, there might be some adverse selection there. I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, dogs walked by men are more aggressive. <laughs> right? Uh, men are just very bad at walking dogs, uh, potentially. Uh, right? Or, you know, more aggressive dogs are also possibly 
90 pounds, uh, and so you know, physical strength might be an important omitted variable that's sort of associated uh, with that. Um, what else? Straight A's in high school and Okay. Uh, what do you think? You know, what's you know? I don't think I think we can just read the title of that, right? Like, what might an alternate explanation for? Like, so again, what is the causal? What is the causal research question that the authors might? Let's give them the benefit of the doubt that the authors want to answer, right? So if you're getting straight A's in high school, does it mean that you'll have a better health in the future? Okay. So getting A's. What would the ideal experiment there actually be? All right. Like, is it getting an A, right? Is this like an affect or an emotional or a competence channel, right? So again, maybe the ideal experiment here is you have two individuals that are both B students, right? And one, you randomly give an A to, even though, right, they are a B student, same aptitude, etc. The individual now with A's has, you know, better health going forward in life. That would be the ideal experiment if we care about what getting an A actually means. Chances are what they're also talking, what they're confounding also in this discussion is, you know, straight A's means, you know, smart individuals, right? So maybe, you know, intelligence or doing well at school is associated with better health uh, later in life. Might there be an admitted variable that's driving that? Tenacity. Or like Tenacity, sure. Genes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, as much as we like, well, you know, we work hard, etc. I think all of us are like, Kind of lucky uh, of where we are. We, you know, we didn't, you know, we didn't lose the genetic lottery, uh, right? You know, we might not have won it, but we didn't lose it, which in and of itself is kind of winning. Um, and so there's like a lot that's kind of outside of our uh, outside of our control. Um, and you know, both um, intelligence, right? Like IQ is correlated. Like we are our IQs are correlated with our parents' IQs, and our health outcomes is correlated with our uh, parents' outcomes. Uh, and those two are both, you know, sort of highly correlated. Um, even though there might still be some additional cumulative advantage. We're going to talk a lot about this when we talk about you know, heterogeneity versus state dependence. That's sort of this nature versus nurture. Are these just initial conditions that allow both to flourish, or do they feed off uh, one another, right? Um, yeah, you know, straight A's, maybe if you, know, you are more intelligent, you also take better care of yourself uh, and are aware, or you have higher income, which allows you, um, you know, to, affords you the opportunities actually to be healthier, right? It, you know, it is sort of it is shocking, uh, you know, the correlation between sort of obesity and socioeconomic status, right? Uh, which isn't fully, you know, orthogonal uh, to you know to IQ, uh, but it's not as strongly like related as like many people want to say, right? Like people are you know poor because you know you know it's their own fault. No, right? I mean that's sort of it's ludicrous. And yet when it comes to socioeconomic status. Um, you know, socioeconomic status is, is very, you know, highly negatively correlated with, uh, with obesity. Uh, and so there are sort of environmental factors, et cetera. You know, all kind of interesting questions, right, when it comes to, you know, sort of public health and returns to education, but clearly something that that set up, you know, just regressing, you know, what your report card was in high school, uh, your healthcare outcomes on what your report card was in high school would not get at, right? Thank you. Uh, anyone else? OMG, texting and IMing doesn't affect spelling. Right? Murder rates affect IQ test scores. Where is that? There we go. Murder rates affect IQ test scores. <laughs> <laughs>
Reuters, come on, Reuters. <laughs> the child's going on IQ testing, the child did not directly witness the killing uh, or know the victim. All right. Uh, oh, boy. Uh, that came out in PNAS. Is this, uh, I mean, we're proceeding as a national, right? This is not a, you know, this is not a junk journal. Um, but uh, let's have a look. Who is this, Sharky? Patrick Sharky. Uh, more than six million were the results of two surveys of children. Uh, surveys. Interesting. So it seems primarily cross-sectional, although is, are there two waves? Uh, two surveys. I mean, this is a little bit better, right? So again, like what would the, again, yeah. this is potentially like sort of a, a first order, uh, first order question. How do, um, you know, sort of adverse uh, 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 events uh, in one's environment affect our ability to learn, right? I mean, this really is, you know, again, from an education uh, standpoint, kind of like first order, right? If you're, uh, I think I alluded to a study recently talking about um, just like air conditioning, right? Um, and, you know, sort of the temperature within sort of classrooms. Uh, again, yeah, that's a difficult study to sort of carefully, you know, sort of identify. You'd want to sort of have some schools where, you know, air conditioning broke for some period of time and then sort of went back because poor, so the, the study was um, a, you know, every degree Fahrenheit that a classroom is higher has, you know, some like 0.6%, you know, sort of drop in sort of test scores, right? So it's more difficult to, the story is more difficult to concentrate, more difficult to learn in, um, you know, sort of trying or, or, or you know, adverse uh, in, environments. Here too, um, you know, how does a traumatic event in one's environment, in one's neighborhood, affect uh, affect learning? You know, what is, if we just sort of regressed murder in IQ, you know, what would the concern be? That there is some selection bias um, with respect of the clustering of families in different neighborhoods that are more prone to violence than others, right? Right, which might, again, IQ might be related to like socioeconomic status, which might be sort of related to um, not being able to uh, afford to live in sort of other areas and sort of, you know, some areas are just worse and also like now attract that type of, uh, you know, that sort of type of crime. And so, you know, this two way, the thing that, you know, intrigues me a little bit, I should read the study, uh, I have not, I have not read all of these, uh, is that they do have two waves, right? And so, um, you know, what would the, what would the ideal experiment here actually be? Ideally, take two children and uh, have one watch and a murder <laughs> and uh, see the outcome a couple of years later. That okay. would be the actual right. idea of experiment. Right. Uh, no, 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 I mean, this is, there's no IRB in here, right? Like, there's no, um, uh, we are doing this for science, right? We're doing like, very questionable, like, like moral and like ethical things for science. But I'm, but I'm glad you said like it's the exposure to murder. It's not the exposure to the individual, right? Because you could have said, well, you can place an, uh, an individual in a in a place more likely to have a murder versus putting them into a place with you know that is less likely to have a murder. That's not really the murder effect because there could be a host yeah. of other contextual factors, as we'll talk about, right? 
and Mansky with these sort of reflection problems that could be both affecting the likelihood of the, the murder channel as well as the environmental, uh, the environmental channel. Um, you know, we, we do have some you know, a fair amount of research now that as well as like IQ, you know, is a socially, you know, is a socially constructed kind of scale and, you know, you can do better and worse on it depending on environmental factors uh, or it can be, it can influence uh, one's IQ outcomes. So you'd really want to sort of expose, right, like you basically randomize and you, know, you have a few murders here and you sort of watch the, uh, watch the outcomes. What, um... So they might have been a bit more appropriate is to, you know, uh, a little bit more appropriate for just a causal inference and fe feasible, um, uh, ethical, uh, moral, not illegal. Repugnant is to sort of conduct multiple sort of waves of individuals. So you have a sort of a set of individuals, you have sort of initial sort of, you know, sort of IQ tests, um, you know, an event occurs, murder occurs. And then you conduct sort of a second wave, and you have variation. What is the problem with that, though? And this is kind of giving the study like a benefit of the doubt, simply with again these two waves. We're sort of attributing like over what time period do you do you look right? Do you conduct an IQ test again? You know, a month later, a year later, two years later? Is it solely the murder, or is it the fact that there could be you know the composition of the neighborhood could alter? Uh, you know, there's a host of different channels that could be associated with this murder, and it might not just be, you know, the effect of murder on, on one's IQ, right? Um, and so I think when, when I sort of set this up initially with, you know, like, the ideal experiment, like, come on, that's easy. Uh, it's still very useful to really think through what it is, you know, exactly that one's trying to isolate, because you might realize that, you know, your silver bullet of identification strategy might not fully solve what it is you need to be solved. Right. Yeah, and then uh, just to come, I mean, when you mentioned that we don't know what time frame it is supposed to be that you look at the after effects, I just recall there are papers where uh, authors do look at and establish causality. Uh, okay, if not in the same word as causality, but they establish that impact has happened four years, three years down the line. Specifically, I remember Green, uh, Greenstone, uh, Greenbeck, uh, Moretti, and uh, so Greenstone, Moretti, and Hornbeck, 2010 paper, where they look at the elaboration effects of plant openings. Yeah, the million-dollar plants. Like, yeah. yeah. So they also kind of drive the argument saying that the impact is happening at least three to five years down the line. And so why can't we establish a similar kind of... Uh, well, we don't know what else is changing, right? So they're, like, this is why assumptions are really important. So the assumptions with the, with the Moretti piece um, and, the, and the, the, Michael Greenstone, uh, the Michael Greenstone piece is, um, I never remember what the final paper uh, title was, but the working paper title was called Million Dollar Plants. Yes. And basically the, the question was, um, what are the benefits actually that accrue to regions when a large incumbent uh, you know, moves into an area and establishes a plant? Are there spillovers? Are there, we'll get back to this later, um, you know, are there spillovers? And so what they did was, they found uh, a trade publication that on a monthly basis basically talked about a particular company that was thinking about relocating and talked about the finalist two locations that they were thinking about. And along, you know, most of the criteria, and again, this is sort of a real estate trade publication, so they, they care about all the factors that presumably uh, a business would care about, uh, labor force, participation rates, sort of unemployment, et cetera, uh, income taxes, right, all the things that uh, would affect selection are more or less balanced along those covariates, and then they end up choosing one. So what you actually, what they argue now is that this runner-up city 
can serve as a good sort of counterfactual for this. The assumption now is that when this firm moves in, nothing else changes, yeah. right? Um, and actually, that's appropriate uh, as well. In the murder case here, we are arguing that the murder is a catalyst for many other things to occur, but it could be that the environmental factors were actually also influencing the... Actually, hold on, let me think about this. Uh, if you did fully rent, like, so these two waves here, um, yeah, unless they balanced on characteristics across neighborhoods and then simply looked at individuals who almost should have been exposed to a murder and weren't in areas that were exposed to a murder and weren't, then you could say it's a murder channel. Whereas if you solely had, you know, two waves of individuals, right, um, Or wave one, uh, you know, sort of 2010, and then you know, sort of 2012, and you know, here you have individuals with uh, you know murders, uh, right? And here, you know, you don't have murders. Um, you know, there's a host of other, you know, there's a host of other factors that may be sort of influencing uh, murders as well. So you'd want to have balance on those covariates. We'll, we'll talk about matching a little bit as well. But if the question is, do murders cause this outcome, you're going to want to have some sort of random assignment, which the two-wave uh, analysis, this here, right? you basically have something that happens and you observe some outcomes right? All right? Uh, based, off of, uh, you know, based off of these events. You're not sure if that event is actually causing that outcome, independent of time period. There's, there's this other factor to it, is when you do these kind of studies, to me it's kind of particular the choice of 10 blocks, because if it was like a permanent effect that you could always measure, you could have chosen one block. Why 10? Why not two? It should hold for every number of blocks, because the influence should be clear yeah. at any distance. Yeah. Even So why 10 blocks? Why such a big number? Why not less? So to me... I mean, there's like a bazillion reasons why yeah, yeah, yeah. why you could right. find uh, other explanations for that. Yep, and you know, just uh, dealing with you know the standard errors and you know the in independence across geographic units, right? Yeah. Uh, neighborhoods rarely change from block to block. You know, like you change sort of a street, and all of a sudden, you know, streets are paved in gold. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, and so you know, crime is clearly going to sort of spill over across these boundaries, and taking that lack of independence into into consideration. Uh, matters matters a lot. Yeah. Well, and since we're doing IQ of children as well, like wouldn't like even though like the neighborhoods don't change, like who goes to certain schools would change across. That's right. So like compositional that. effects. That would be a big difference. That's right. Right. It could also right if you're just looking at mean outcomes, uh, is this coming from the extensive margin, right? Where the you know possibly the most uh, the families with the most resources who might also have um, maybe the smartest children exit, mm. and so the pool that's left behind now seems like it's lower. Or do you really follow the same individual across time, right? Like the ideal experiment is more on the intensive margin as opposed to uh, compositional effects, right? Does that make sense? I have a question on ideal experiment. Yeah. If I have to conduct an experiment, should I choose two individuals randomly or two individuals from the same community where there are chances of seeing a murder or there cannot be a chance of seeing, to see a murder? Sorry, say it again. If I have to choose two individuals, should I choose them in, uh, randomly or choose Two from the same community where there is a chance of seeing a murder or there can never be a chance of seeing a murder? Well, by, by choosing randomly, you should get balance on that ladder. 
right? So you should get 50% that are, you know, the COVID, if it really is random, mm -hmm. then um, the background characteristics of each of their neighborhoods should be random as well and should be independent. Um, you know, one thing we'll talk about when uh, setting up experiments is to actually show ex post balance, right? So these types of concerns where you might, believe, you know, sometimes randomization doesn't always work. Right? Sometimes you just might get un unlucky uh, and you get, might un unbalance on covariates, but we, you can test that explicitly. You can then also stratify uh, potentially, uh, which we'll talk about uh, later on as well. Um, so that would be one approach. Uh, please don't think about this experiment too much though. Right. All right. <laughs> like, so back to this murder thing. Uh, okay, uh, let's, uh, let's move on. Uh, what I want you to do, you know, Cast a very careful eye, not only in research that you know you yourselves see, uh, but also when you're reading the news, when you're you know when you're sort of going you know when you're going through. Think about what actually has to hold in order for this interpretation to be you know to be causal. Um, okay, so let's go to Stata now. So, um, let me just close this and we'll run it again. All right, uh, we'll see how to do this with our super small, maybe we'll just sort of tab back and forth. All right, so we are going to uh, think about a model. Can people sort of, can people see this? Uh, we're going to think about how we can estimate or, or you know, the difficulty associated uh, with estimating uh, simultaneous relationships. And so in this case, uh, and I'll get sort of the, to these technicalities afterwards, because I, I, I do want to go through this. It's very useful actually sometimes to generate your own data to really sort of, you know, to both sort of simulate outcomes when you can't, you know, I think we can always solve things analytically frequently, but sometimes the intuition isn't always quite there and sometimes you kind of want to see it in the data yourselves, and so simulation can be just a really useful tool uh, for you to observe, you know, different properties uh, econometrically. So we're going to have a sort of a, a, you know, sort of the true model or the, you know, the data generating process here, where we're going to argue that, you know, status is going to be a function of individual quality, right, at 0.65, as well as a little bit more weekly socioeconomic status, right, sort of 0.15 plus, you know, sort of a well-behaving error term. So this is, you know, epsilon s, epsilon for status, okay? So this is sort of the true uh, DGP. Quality now, on the other hand, is also going to be a function of status, but more, you know, it would be weaker, sort of 0.34, and uh, a much greater impact on quality will be ability, right, at 0.45. And so again, here now we have another well-behaving sort of error term, um, you know, epsilon for quality. Okay, so going back up here, um, and how many people use Stata? A lot. Okay, good. So I don't have to go into some or anything. Um, I normally don't, you know, comment my Stata code all that well. You should all comment your code. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we're going to set a, a seed parameter. Has anyone sort of sort of set right? Just allows you anytime you're doing anything sort of stochastic, allows you to sort of reproduce uh, your results. Uh, we're going to look at 2,500 observations here. We're going to first generate our bivariate normal distributions, right? Uh, ES and EQ. Uh, and so those will have, uh, I believe, standard deviation 
uh, one, well, well, actually, let's run this quickly. Um, uh, yeah, standard deviation of one and mean zero. Not perfect, uh, as you can see, uh, but pretty darn close. We can run sort of kernel density, and they are, you know, sort of fully, you know, orthogonal uh, to one another as well, right? So that's, you know, that's not crazy. Uh, we're then going to generate our data again. Uh, and, you know, SES and ability will, again, just come from the uniform distribution, uh, 0 to 1. Status now, um, we'll simply, you know, by rearranging uh, a little bit of algebra, uh, status is going to be sort of a function of this, and quality is going to be a function, uh, a function of this. Okay? So let's generate that uh, as well. And recall now, though, like in our status specification, quality uh, should have sort of, you know, an elasticity, not directly in elasticity because these aren't uh, these aren't logs, but um, should you know for every additional uh, unit of uh, of quality, status should increase by uh, 0.65, right? So let's just sort of run our very first regression, and we see that there's this upward bias, right? We're getting a parameter of 0.87. Why might that be? Why is OLS generating uh, an estimate that is clearly larger than the DGP. The simultaneity is, and the positive correlation between the two is generating the upper bias. Exactly, right? There's positive omitted variable, right? Right? Uh, what would we imagine when it comes to quality and status now? Right? If we regress quality on status, will we get 0.34 or something below or something above? Something above again? Something above again, right? Because they're sort of positively correlated, the errors are positively correlated. Uh, with our x's, not surprising, like sort of 0.685, right? And, you know, the, the bias is really large, right? You know, this is sort of not trivial. So what can we do about this, right? Let's first, and, you know, this is where the comments kind of give away the, uh, the punchline, right? Uh, <laughs> what's going to happen? I don't know, it's in your comments. Um, yeah. Let's first you know, just sort of control for, on the status equation here, we're now going to control for ability, which is an omitted variable, uh, as well as SES, which was an omitted variable as well. All right? Still 0.875 on quality, right? So this gives us, a, at least in a, in a sort of a simultaneous equation, simply controlling for all the components does not get us, you know, the correct and unbiased estimate of the of the parameter. Let's run this now. Um, uh, the quality specification again, controlling for ability uh, and SES. Recall that the the true uh, coefficient is 0 0.34, 0.682. All right, still a, a, a tremendous uh, amount of, of bias. Again, everyone's comfortable with data output, right? So I don't have to sort of show the whole screen um, now. Let's, um, you know, let's sort of run a two-stage least square, all right? Um, and what we get here now, if we, you know, sort of instrument quality for ability, is ability, like, does ability kind of solve the exclusion restriction? No. Why? Because ability... Affects well, but how does ability affect status? Through quality. Through? Yeah, but how does it affect it? 
Like it doesn't ability doesn't directly affect status. Mm -hmm. I think it would solve it. At least it, you would get the movement of one. A little bit more, right? Don't worry. Like ability affects status through quality, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. We've been very clear when, when people, and we'll get into this, you know, uh, much more later on in this course. You know, solving, and we'll, we'll sort of talk about different tests in order to sort of you know, deal with uh, or bolster one's claims that one is satisfying the exclusion restriction, what I've seen in some like just very bad work is just, you know, for people to sort of regress their dependent variable on their instrument and show that, you know, they're uncorrelated. That is like hyper problematic, right? <laughs> like the IV estimator is regressing your dependent variable on your instrument divided by, right, the, covar or the covariance, right, between your dependent, between Y and Z and the, divided by the covariance of X and Z. Right, you're starting. You're kind of scaling um, that sort of covariation by your instrument, and so your instrument has to affect your dependent variable. The key is the exclusion restriction is the only route by which it affects your dependent variable is through your endogenous variable, right? Um, and that is somewhat what we what we have here, right? Ability is affected. Like, so status is is a function of quality, and quality is a function of ability. Right. So it should help us uh, to solve it a little bit. So let's sort of run this uh, quickly. And again, what was the point estimate? 0.65 uh, status on quality 0.65. And we get 0.70. So it's a lot closer, um, but it's still not perfect. And part of that is because it isn't exactly the strongest first stage. Right. So the stronger the first stage, the more everyone sort of talks about, you know, sort of weak instruments and the extent to which it's a problem. Yeah, we don't always have a counterfactual, right? Because we're not sure if there's some uh, measurement error, which could be, you know, sort of downwardly biasing our estimates. We don't always have, you know, the true DGP in order to sort of simulate this. Here we do, and you know, we can see we're getting much closer. Um, we're getting much sort of much much closer to the true coefficient, but it's still uh, it's still not spot on. Um, now, what would happen, and again, you know, here the standard error is 0.145, or let, let's think about this in terms of a z-score. z-score is 0.482. What happens if we include SES? Does SES need to be included in here? Does, let's again go back to our DGP. Does SES, does the omission of SES from our regression result in bias? SES is part of the DG. Does this work? Yeah, there we go, right? SES, or I guess I could have used this as well, right? SES is part of the specification, but SES, is SES correlated with quality? No. So what should we expect? Should we expect this coefficient to change when we include SES? No. What should we think should happen to standard error? Should drop, right? We get some increase in efficiency. So let's use a z-score as a proxy, 482. Uh, and now it goes up to sort of 491. So not much, but you sort of, you recover some efficiency. And the point estimate, you know, 7099, uh, 7016, uh, you know, some minor, minor changes, but it, you know, it, it's clearly, uh, you know, sort of not related. All right. So that's on, uh, you know, regressing status on, on quality using ability as an instrument. And ability uh, entered in at around, you know, sort of 0.45. And so not inherently a weak instrument, right? We sort of have this, you know, 
f stat of around 25, what do we think is going to happen when we instrument status uh, with SES? Similar thing. Similar thing, but is this a weaker instrument? Yeah. It's a weaker instrument by construction, yeah, right? Like, <laughs> we, yeah. We're playing, you know, kind of God here, right? So like, <laughs> I, I want us to sort of see what might happen with uh, when we have sort of a much weaker instrument. Satisfies the exclusion restriction. Let's be very clear, right? Is SES an appropriate uh, instrument for uh, for status? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, because it satisfies the exclusion restriction. The only way that SES affects quality is through status. Right. All right. So let's have a look. And what is the true coefficient? 0.34. 0.24, really, really off. And our F stat, right, around four, not surprising, right? Um, if we run, you know, the IV reg command is great. If we just add in first, it'll generate our first stage uh, as well. A host of diagnostics, let's have a look. Here we are, right, 0.2047. Um, right, again, so some, some, upward, uh, some upward bias and not very precisely uh, not very precisely estimated. Will controlling now again for ability improve our estimate? Well, a little bit, right? You know, here we had uh, 0.65, and now we're at 0.83, right? Uh, but it still shows that, you know, using, you know, this exclusion restriction works if and only if really, you know, the first stage is strong. Um, and, you know, we're going to talk a lot about IV. Getting a great instrument is just really, really difficult. IV really is just a workhorse estimator when it works. But it's inefficient. It requires just, you know, a host of things to, to go right. And so it's going to be part kind of of our, of our arsenal of uh, natural experiments, randomized control trials, you know, IV. You can put randomized control trials within an IV framework, but recognizing that, you know, IV estimates are, you know, kind of, they're, they're inefficient. And I think, um, you know, our very last uh, class, uh, in, or very last session, uh, or penultimate session, we'll talk about best practices, testing, standard errors, you know, this is kind of our, our miscellany. I think there's a reason why in most papers you see an upward, you know, why you see IV estimates that are larger than your OLS estimates. This is just a super cynical interpretation, right? Even though the concern normally is always like positive selection, right? And so your IV estimates should be smaller than your, you know, OLS estimates. I think the reason you see larger estimates is because it's an inefficient estimator. And the only reason it makes it into the paper is because it's significant. And the only reason it's significant is because the point estimate is larger because the standard errors are larger, right? The only way you get something uh, with some stars next to it is if it's larger. And then people will argue that, well, it looks like there was lots of measurement error with our OLS estimates. And that's why they're, you know, downwardly biased. Or, you know, this is a local average treatment effect that's really sort of just hitting uh, some part of the, of the, of the support, uh, and that's why we should sort of imagine this to be a little bit larger. I think what we more often than not have uh, is simply the survivorship bias, where, you know, all the other results that had a smaller point estimate were just too inefficient to show you something that was significant. So it's, it's important to keep that uh, in the back of your mind. I don't think all the case, uh, you know, all the time, but... I think that can explain a, a, a non-trivial share of the variation and why you know IV estimates are positive correlated. Um, and this again is coming from 
uh, you know, someone who studies strategy and policy, um, you know, I think selection, we tend to sort of choose uh, policies, strategies, programs, treatments that we believe ex ante already have a higher likelihood of a positive outcome. And so this positive selection should always be in the back of our mind. Uh, and then when we see IV estimates that are even larger, uh, you have to make some argument that there's negative selection, which is, I think, a little bit more tenuous. Okay. <coughs> that was data. Let's take a break. Uh, let's come back here at 1.30. Eight minutes, does that work? Do you guys need a little bit more? Great. You can do a, like, efficiency, you can always improve, but the weak instruments will really, they really affect is like are you even identifying yeah. anything that you want to identify. I mean, yeah, you should. Because, as the professor said, um, you you can always like that works. It's an instrument because it's not theory. But how well is it? And then if you're talking about weak instruments, the asymptotics like that you really have to think about are the weak instrument like on top of the like with the C value. Am I bothering you, sir? So the asymptotics that you really need to think about are different once you have weak instruments because even as you increase n, the correlation still remains weak. So mm -hmm. because usually you can dominate uh, just by larger n's, mm -hmm. that small correlation, as long as it remains constant, could be dominated. But once you're talking about weak instruments, um, big n, the correlation still remains low, even as you increase n. So, yeah, no, I get I didn't mean to talk in your bag. It's fine. I don't know. I'm not familiar with it. <laughs> with the rules around about talking to people here. Yeah. I like it. I thought it was going to be less like on the type of illness that's a master in Ecuador and like so it could be said that there's a correlation but it's not very good where they so you know like so you know so you know so you know so you know so I think, yeah, I think it should definitely, it would be nice, but, um, yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking, so maybe it's like, he won't go into it that much, but then you can complement. Yeah. 
Like, am I reading the word wrong? The GM stuff? Because even if you do fish in GM, it's more of a. G my goal is all I is efficient. If everything is in place, GMM. Yeah, but but it's you don't only need homeostasis. You need what? Homeostasis is going to be an efficient distortion, right? No, no. Like you don't need it for homeostasis. Oh yeah, I said you meant GIS. So I think this is. Do you like the class? It's pretty good. Yeah. Right, you? But the, the problem with the GMM is that they need the estimation of the matrix too. It's basically a tool you know, to work. Now you need the efficient class. Yeah, it's really great. I have stuff to do for class tomorrow. Oh, I know, but Cheng said you approve it. Is that the only thing we have to do? Yeah, we just have to do that proof. Just plus you have to do that proof. I didn't ever That was one of the Elena's question in exam number two. Yeah, what's the comment? I haven't read it yet, but I told Chang and I were talking about it in the office, and I was like, well, Chang, why don't you prove it? And he was like, he was like, I don't want to. And I was like, don't you want to your presentation skills? And then I guilted him about it. So he Actually, made it more yeah, that's yeah, that's what I thought when I started. I, I started yeah. Prove the whole paper. I actually went through the whole proof and everything, and I finished, and it was like, and then he goes like, oh, are you going to try to prove Lemma 1? I just Lemma 1. Is the proof in there, or did you need to come up with that? It's in the book. I haven't read it. It's in the book. It's in the book. It's in the book. It's just Zlatsky's theory. I'll have to look at it before it makes Yeah. Is it there? Yeah. It might be too late. Yeah. Who's teaching? Richard. Oh, again. Yeah. So it's probably the same class. I think he changed because, like, they the professors made a big deal about not the simultaneous equation models and like a lot of other things. That he covered. Yeah. Because without it, he he focused a lot on like. Empirical methods, so like uh, that's all. He, like empirical process, empirical process theory. That's all he did. <laughs> so now I think he, they made him be like, oh, do more regular. Yeah, that was what David mentioned to us. Yeah, I But the series looks super interesting. When yeah, went through it, it looks super nice. Uh, which books? Which books are we? Yeah. Uh, he's not. Uh, he actually is not mentioning any books. He's just using papers. Okay. And what are you trying to do? Uh, right now, it's just the first class is going to be a proof of the of the. Uh, Central limit theory. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's an proof that actually doesn't require the characteristic function. So some people try to say, oh, uh, I think that's because this is called. Yeah, it's kind of a. But it's a super clever proof. Mm -hmm. 
But for real, one of them was wrong. Or maybe both of them are wrong because it bounds every distribution between two epsilon for real or epsilon greater than So reverse causality is two things happen at the same time. And you say, ah, I think this is because what you're wrong is maybe because actually. You know, then from that, he uh, also proves that the, the derivative also always Another situation might be two things and because happen at the same time. Oh, also, none of them cause each other. Well, it's yeah, so like clear. Oh, right, forget it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't yeah, that's what he, well, yeah, he, he wants to come in cars, so. I mean, but it's so much easier to come in cars. It's so much faster. And also, it's only like, going to be like 10 bucks parking or something, right? Yeah, yeah like and we're splitting between four, so, yeah, so, like, yeah, so like, it makes sense. Like, more, time is like that. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It comes for the, for the, the, the time, because it only leaves at 10.55, so we will be here at 11.15, 11.20, something like So, I'm going to... On Tuesdays, we have a class at 8 a.m. Yeah. So I'm just going to take the MARTA down here and then shuttle over to Emory. That way I can just take the MARTA back up when we come here and not have to drive home and drive back up. Um, but if you guys are driving back from Emory to Georgia yeah. Tech, then I won't take the shuttle back. I'll just drive with you guys back and then take the MARTA. Yeah. Okay. That's what you think you're going to do. It is. <laughs> Oh, hey, what's the thing? Do you eat the RSVP? What? Do you eat the No, no. But we do have like the thing on Read every That, yeah, the welcome card. Okay, yeah, I'll go to this. There you go. But you can buy the password and I did it by trips. You can also do it by trips. 
right? Uh, which could be inherent. Uh, did those change? Uh, or is it simply experienced possibly with alliances, the transaction costs now associated in, you know, uh, writing contracts now for future licenses is easier, um, et cetera. You think about, you know, uh, large literature on, on first mover uh, advantages that emerge in platforms, uh, let's say. Is this timing, right? Or is this ability? All right, so, and by this, you know, better, more able firms recognize the opportunities earlier and thus enter earlier. But it's difficult to disentangle that simply from an early entrant uh, sort of phenomenon from an ability uh, characteristic. Uh, think about, again, you know, related to the sort of platforms, think about, you know, network effects and uh, when possibly, uh, you know, platforms tip towards one, um, you know, to, to sort of one side where there's sort of a, a dominant sort of de facto standard that emerges. Is this, again, a result of quality uh, or install base? And does install base, you know, affect quality of, uh, of the product, right? Actually being able to identify network effects are actually very, very empirically challenging. Right? Uh, and so what does Heckman conclude? You know, the data do not speak for themselves, um, especially when it comes to uh, state dependence. The ability to distinguish between heterogeneity and duration dependence rests critically on maintaining explicit assumptions about the way unobservables and observables interact not surprising, right? Heckman's going to push for a structural, uh, you know, sort of a structural approach, which I, I do think, you know, I'm a big fan of, of, of structural econometrics um, for the right types of for the right types of questions. We, you know, I'm not the right person to teach you any sort of structural stuff. So I've done like some structural stuff in some papers, but this is primarily kind of a reduced form uh, course. And as with everything, it's important to understand which tools are most appropriate for what types of for what types of questions. All right. But there are some solutions, right? Uh, again, you know, ideally we would estimate, you know, individual level averages, right, uh, through fixed effects or just sort of, you know, demeaning ones, covariates um, at the individual level. You know, again, best solution, you look for exogenous treatment, right? Something that switches behavior randomly, uh, and then we observe uh, what happens. However, it's still important to recognize you can't identify the relative roles of nature versus nurture. Just that in a local average treatment effect sense, right? Because again, that is all that a natural experiment is doing, right? Those that are sort of induced to sort of switch behavior based off of this exogenous variation. So just in a, in a late sense, and we're gonna get into this uh, you know, much more in this class, in a local average treatment effect sense, nature matters, right? But not that, in an, from an average treatment effect uh, sense, nature always matters. Or in a different setting, maybe nurture matters, right? And you know, one side point is you're much more likely to get a nurture experiment than a nature experiment, right? Uh, something that changes one's external environment as opposed to uh, initial conditions. And so we're gonna try to hold those constant and think about how much now um, you know, the state dependence might impact uh, outcomes and how that might interact with heterogeneity. So, uh, so if you take the example of the alliance literature, for example, if mm -hmm. they are taking, there are papers where they look at the scope of the alliance and their further innovative activity in some mm -hmm. of the alliances. Then, so what kind of uh, is is it possible to give an example of uh, external shock that that can be considered a good uh, good example? Because most of the papers that I see, they don't 
consider those external no, they shocks. Don't. They are, no, they don't. Yeah. Good. Are, is this causing you some like consternation now, right? Some cause for concern? Yeah, Good. Yeah. <laughs> right? And they only tell that the relation, there's a relationship. They don't claim there's That's, a cause. No, I know. But like, I, you know, we kind of started this course by, you know, sort of arguing that we should be asking causal questions, right? Um, and, you know, alliances like M&A activity, like there's so much within kind of like corporate strategy and corporate finance that are just really interesting questions that are just so poorly identified, right? Like, does it make sense to like acquire a company? Well, yeah, you're not going to randomly pick a company. There's already been some due diligence that's been applied to this potential target. Um, and even then, the empirical literature shows that most M&A activity is value-destroying, right? Which is amazing, because you're already selecting on those deals that ex-ante had a positive like expected value, like a positive NPV. And so if we really think about... Like, it gets a little philosophical, right? When we think about like a treatment effect, like a training program or education, uh, we sometimes think about like is M and A a good tool, and for it to be you know used randomly, and really to evaluate the the value of uh, M and A activity would be to say like this firm we're going to force to acquire right a random target, uh, which is kind of ludicrous. Uh, I don't think that's sort of the right experiment. Would clearly sort of just destroy a tremendous amount of uh, value, net of the the massive costs associated in acquiring uh, another uh, another company um, so within uh, within the alliances literature what kind of instrument might you so I mean, what would you want right what would the ideal experiment be uh, with uh, this research question the question is does uh, actually you frame the you frame the research question what's an interesting research question and then we'll judge whether or not it's a good research question or not <laughs> <laughs> we're friends here we're friends here. <laughs> So if uh, the scope of the alliance is, if it is broader, okay, that would probably lead to a higher, let's say if it's an R&D alliance, okay. it would lead to higher innovation activity for both the... Does a broad alliance scope have a positive impact on innovative outcomes, however we define that? That's yes. the question? Yes. Okay. So what would you want, like what would the ideal experiment then be? Considering two alliances uh, between which are similar in all other aspects in terms of the company mm -hmm. characteristics, and then one having a broad scope, one having a narrow scope, and uh, then compare the innovation output of both the companies. Fair enough, right? So you're already conditioning on some of alliance, which there might be some selection that's like inherent uh, in that as well. But that is different from the research question, right? Is sort of conditional alliance. What is the what does the scope look like? Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure actually what you know. Even an ideal, I mean, that is the ideal experiment. What type of instrument you could have? Like, you know, I've seen, or you know, I, I, I think I've seen some instruments related to alliance formation where you simply have you know sort of very you know very like much more of an I/O approach. There's just variation of the number of potential partners that exist that. Uh, are due to sort of exogenous reasons that is sort of uncorrelated with, um, you know, again, like the market structure. The problem is there from an exclusion restriction standpoint. We, there's a lot of research showing you that you know, in you know oligopolies, you know, oligopolies tend to be less innovative because they have you know price setting power, and so the market structure, which might affect alliances, is also going to affect how innovative you are. Um, I think you'd have to think I, on the spot. I can't think of anything. Um, 
But you're thinking about the ideal experiment the right way. Yeah. Could we go to a setup from, uh, uh, in the context of MNAs, there are, let's say, two identical firms, both of which are announced for a merger, mm -hmm. but then the merger goes through in one of them and it gets unwound in the other one. Would that be a close enough? Maybe you'd want to get into a. You'd need a lot of those instances, right, in order to get some like to get some power. Second, um, it would have to be for reasons that are unrelated to like to market power, right? Um, and so you could imagine that the merger that uh, goes through, uh, let's say they're both kind of like horizontal, uh, one doesn't kind of shift the herf like sort of quite as much, right? They sort of just the concentration within uh, within the industry. Um, the one that, you know, the one that goes, uh, through is the one that actually doesn't increase market power quite as much, which results in a greater incentive also to innovate. And so like, you'd have to really are like, you'd have to think through the exclusion restriction there very carefully. Right. And this is sort of why we talk about like any kit, because there isn't just this sort of silver bullet. It's walking the reader, uh, through like the audience through what has to hold in order for us to think of this as you know a causal you know a, a causal link um and we'll get much better at it in this class and there's no you know for those of you kind of joined uh, kind of refer to this class as like that like the art of the science because there is you know there is no kind of like dominant way there's just like more persuasive and less persuasive ways to kind of tackle these problems and we learn by doing uh, and, but it's, you know, it's first important to understand what the problems are, be able to identify them, recognize the shortcomings, and then start to think through solutions. But we're still at the problem definition phase right now. Uh, okay. But great questions. Like, please keep them, please keep them coming. Um, let's talk about the reflection problem now. Um, was everyone able to find chapter seven? Some people? Good. Okay, good. Uh, I mean, this is a great, has anyone read this book? Does anyone know Charles Mansky? Right? Uh, I mean... Uh, it's still such a, a, a great, great uh, treatment, especially when we think about, you know, uh, contagion effects, how, you know, any, anything that pertains to sort of diffusion uh, of, of practices. So, you know, let's, you know, very beginning. What is, what is the reflection problem? Seeing yourself in the mirror. It's like seeing yourself in the mirror. Uh, like, hello, self. You are very good looking. Uh, <laughs> uh, what else, though? Like, how does, how does it arise? Kind of hard behavior. Uh, herd behavior. Okay. What else? Like the uh, contextual effects and the correlated effects and the endogenous effects. So okay. The combination of these three would push towards. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, right. These endogenous uh, social effects uh, may exist. Right. The propensity of an individual to behave in some way varies with the prevalence of that behavior in some reference group containing the individual, right? That is, you know, that is the peer effect to a certain extent, right? How other individuals influence your behavior. That tends, when we think about sort of peer effects, that's what we're thinking about. Do you, um, you know, we'll get into sort of like a sort of matching uh, in a little bit, right? Because those are those, those correlated effects. But if we want individuals to learn from others, uh, do you match them with really, really smart people, right? If endogenous effects are at play, you might now sort of benefit from this environment. Uh, or like negatively, right? If there's sort of negative behavior that sort of uh, seeped off, those are those endogenous social effects. Um, 
It's, uh, and you'll, you'll see why it's called uh, sort of endogenous in, uh, uh, in a little bit. In, and in this, in this sense, the verbiage is a little bit off because we always think of, you know, you know, we tend to not always refer to the dependent variable as the endogenous variable, um, right? We tend to think of like this endogeneity problem of non-exogenous right-hand side variable. But here, you know, the endogenous social effect is really, you know, the parties affecting one's, uh, affecting one's behavior, which would be a true pure effect. Um, and here we can think of this, you know, this could be social norms, it could be some form of, uh, of imitation, right? It could be contagion, it could be some herd behavior, it could be pure effect. Like that. There's a number of different terms for them. The mechanism could vary, right? It could be uh, role modeling uh, that exists. It could be that you're taught something that you previously didn't have, um, etc. We then have, you know, the reflection problem. This arises when a researcher uh, looks in the mirror and smiles. <laughs> arises when a researcher observing the distribution of behavior in a population tries to infer whether the average behavior in some group influences the behavior of the individuals that comprise the group. Right? Is it, um, you know, these are sort of like individual behaviors in aggregate and is one causing the other, uh, one or the other. And there, you know, this comes from sort of the reflection problem, you know, you look in the mirror, um, an absent, you know, sort of theory about, you know, I don't know, agency, right? Yeah. And, and you sort of free thought, uh, you know, you move your hand in front of the mirror, what, which is causing, which is causing, which, right? Yes. What is the behavior of the group? Okay, so let's say you hang out with people that smoke a lot, right? And you smoke too. Um, we are now trying to determine whether or not that characteristic of the group is causing you to smoke, right? So whether the average behavior in some group, the smoking group, that the fact that the majority of individuals smoke influences the behavior of the individuals that comprise that group. So does everyone in that group smoke because everyone in that group smokes? So is it the behavior of the group or the behavior of the leader? Leader of the group, right? Could be, right? Could be. Uh, when we tend to think about pure effects, uh, that would be sort of much more bilateral with, you know, sort of a large, within a larger group setting. Um, but we tend to think about, um, you know, your circle of, your circle of friends, right? Or your, uh, or your community or your neighborhood as opposed to uh, leaders. That might allow you to tighten up. If you think about herding behavior, right? If you have 10 people already in, in that kind of a situation, 11% comes and be in that situation. 12% comes and be in that situation. So it's greatly like not the whole group, but the first few people. Maybe, 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 right? And there's, you know, there's some great actually work in uh, like name checking a lot of sociology today by uh, Mark Granovetter on uh, threshold effects, right? As of, you know, there are sort of these like step function differences after certain thresholds. Uh, when does that start to, when does that start to bite? Um, so yes, uh, there certainly can be differences between um, you know, how groups are formed. You're now getting into like a first order sociological question, right? Like what are groups, how do they form, right? Uh, that we cannot begin to wade into that um, I think our, you know, economics for the most part like just takes that as given. Like there are different like structures, right? Of, of individuals that are kind of given how do people behave. Um, 
yeah, maybe we, if you want to drop out of operations and, uh, and do some sociology, like, who are we, you know, what, 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 what do I have friends? <laughs> um, yeah, I, that's sort of, it's a bit beside the point. Um, but it's a good, it's a, it's beside the point when it comes to sort of reflection problem, but it's, it's a good point, right? And so does the mirror image cause a movement or reflect, uh, reflect the movement, right? You know, do you, um, you know, do you all study, you know, econometrics because all your friends study econometrics, um, <laughs> right? Um, or, you know, is there something else potentially going on, right? So the result, though, um, is, you know, this inference uh, on endogenous social effects is not possible without prior information on the composition of the reference group, right? Uh, so we look like before. Such, we need an instrument um, or, you know, some, some, type of, some type of treatment. All right, uh, I was gonna get a little small, but I, these slides are posted already. Um, and for anyone who's not on Canvas, were they distributed? Or yeah. you've got your own like, yeah. co-op, your own collective. Good, good, good. Um, and again, this is just sort of a little bit of summary, and I want us to have a bit of time to talk about the Sastradotti uh, Dartmouth uh, study. So three competing hypotheses for this reflection uh, concern, right? Uh, we have these endogenous effects, that's the causal impact of group mean on individual uh, behavior. Think about, you know, a student's achievement is affected by the mean of the group's achievement. So if you are put into a class with smarter kids, you perform better, right? That is the pure effect that we care deeply about. You now get lumped in with a bunch of, uh, you know, cohort mates that are interested in econometrics and you become more interested in econometrics. There are contextual effects. This is, you know, still causal, but not in a pure sense. This is causal from external characteristics. Think about this as more of an admitted variable bias. You know, um, in the case of a student achievement, it might be, you know, socioeconomic status drives behavior and group characteristics. So another example here is, well, you know, are you, you know, are you all in? You know, does everyone here have, you know, mostly harm, harmless econometrics because a lot of other people here have mostly harmless econometrics? Where did I tell you to get it? <laughs> right? These are contextual means you are all exposed to some external stimuli, me, right, which caused you to sort of get this book. But an outsider, right, the naive econometrician would simply say, whoa, everyone has this book. They must have, yeah, maybe it's an endogenous effect. Maybe they caused one another to get that book, as opposed to sort of recognizing these external uh, sort of, you know, sort of contextual uh, effects. So uh, it not only drives sort of behavior, but also the characteristics of the group, right? Another way to think of it, you know, a student's achievement is affected by characteristics of the group, which also affects the group's achievement, right? So let's say uh, school resources or teacher quality uh, is really, really uh, important. Okay? And then lastly, we have correlated effects. Um, and this we can think of more as like omitted variable bias at the individual level or selection, right? This is actually going back to the XCKD comic, the stick figure comic, right? Uh, where the cringes be correlated effects. So individuals that are more likely to learn about the difference between correlation and causation are also more likely to take a course on causal inference. But it's not that the course itself caused that outcome, right? Um, here we can think, you know, a student's achievement is affected by, you know, his or her own uh, 
socioeconomic status, and students with similar socioeconomic status attend the same school. Right? You know, at least in the United States, that is you know very much you know very much the case. Um, and so to say, like, look, all these students are doing really, really well at certain schools. Is it something about the school? Is it something about the peer group? Or is it something about, uh, you know, maybe just the innate ability of these individuals that are more likely to be clustered in certain geographic areas, which are then too more likely to attend the same school, right? <clears throat> and so these are kind of like the three various uh, explanations and hypotheses that could affect this aggregate phenomenon, right? And so just saying, well, I want to look at peer effects. I want to see how, you know, people influence each other is really, really darn, like, damn hard. <laughs> Drop the darn. Like, it's, it's freaking hard, um, right? Uh, why do we care? Well, as social scientists, we want to understand what is happening, right? If we want to devise some policy interventions, um, it matters, right? Um, maybe actually having ability diversity within a classroom is much better than having assortative matching. We don't, you know, we don't know. Actually, do we want to have a very uniformly distributed uh, classroom um, if there are these sort of contagion effects? Um, are they symmetric? Do uh, less able students learn from more able students, right? Or do less able students pull down more able uh, students that might have, you know, there are gifted programs in almost every given country with the assumption that, you know, like with like or sort of matching will have these greater multiplier uh, effects. For prediction, right, we need to know which model is right. If there are reinforcing endogenous effects, we can actually get increasing returns. I affect you, and subsequently you affect me, right? This can qu quickly even become sort of convex. Whereas if they're just correlated effects, right, um, then there's no social multiplier, and so the organization of these, you know, of these individuals might not might not matter. Think about you know management training programs that lots of companies have. Um, like there's sort of just a multitude of you know do managers matter right within personnel economics? This is kind of like a first order question. Um, do managers matter? Right, and there's been some recent, you know, of this sort of like Ed Lazier, uh, you know, sort of ilk in, in students, uh, showing that actually some managers, you know, matter a tremendous amount, but it's actually very difficult to ascertain how much a manager matters. What does a manager do? He manages other people, and so not only do we have a data problem, we don't know exactly what you know the manager themselves do, other than through the output of the people that report to them. But what if better able employees? are assigned to, you know, better, to work with better managers, right? What if um, individuals that are sort of smart enough to find uh, departments or business units that are on the rise, uh, you know, self-select together? And so you just have sort of higher ability individuals picking uh, business units that are, that are growing. Right? Okay. So let's go... Uh, Mankey. Mansky's uh, linear model here, just really, really quickly, and then we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about Sasha Um You know, we have here. Uh, we can sort of fill, actually, let's walk through it. So, you know, the the, the data generating process uh, is where we'd like to see some type of outcome y as a function of these three different components, which we just discussed, right? the endogenous component, the contextual, uh, and the correlated, uh, which we'll think of as like sort of X, uh, W, and Y. So let's think about like X 
uh, defining a particular reference group, right, being at uh, a certain school. Uh, w uh, could be the student's socioeconomic status, uh, let's say. Um, B would then be the endogenous effects, right? So we're seeing how like, the expectation of X on Y affects you know, the expectation of Y conditional on X and W, right? So it's sort of this, this bait. We can see how they're, they're on both sides. That's the reflection concern, right? Uh, that would be the endogenous effects. C would be the contextual effects, right? How reference group characteristics affects, you know, let's say is it something like sort of socioeconomic status, which is also an important factor in determining uh, outcomes. And then we have these correlated effects, which we can think of as, uh, as D. This is just sort of the direct effect of the reference group characteristics on outcomes. Uh, and we can also have the direct effect of individual characteristics on Y. Yeah, that's everything. And so we can see why it's called the reflection problem, right? Because the expectation of Y conditional on, on X appears on both sides. And you know, if W is a function of X, then you always find these sort of these social effects. And so, you know, a, a solution for this uh, will be either an instrument or some, you know, some, some random variation in assignment uh, to X. So let's talk about uh, Sasserdotti uh, and this sort of famous uh, Dartmouth. Did anyone here go to Dartmouth? Okay. Um, only because I read this paper uh, when I was still uh, when I was still an undergrad, and like one of my best friends from childhood uh, was a Dartmouth. I remember him telling me uh, how he was just like kind of like thrown in with these like complete strangers. One guy like played the banjo, banjo, and he's like this is great. Uh, and the other one was like big into like Apple computers, right? In the, like the late '90s, before anyone else was. And and so I kind of like knew about this random assignment. Uh, I was not as well tuned yet to you know reflection problem, uh, but I remember reading this paper and thought like, oh well, this is sort of a great you know potential potential solution, right? So, what is uh, what is the research question? Uh, what is the research question here? So in essence, the the GPA of your roommate affect your GPA, so the measuring of the pyramids. Okay, right. But even like higher level, um, you know, do you know, do your peers affect, you know, affect your outcomes? And they're going to look at, you know, sort of, they're going to look at GPA, they're going to look at a, sort of a number of different things. Uh, we'll discuss maybe why GPA might be problematic, uh, right? We'll, we'll sort of get into that. Uh, but the question is like, do you, are you affected, do you, you know, are you affected from a learning standpoint by the people that are around you? Like, first order question, right? Like, just first order question. And... Given all of those challenges with the reflection problem, what do we, to a certain extent, need? We need like relationships between people where they aren't choosing it. So exactly, like, does the group choose it? Exactly, you need some like random. That's right. So you need an instance where individuals aren't able to sort of self-select in um, into those into those groups, right? You need some uh, some random uh, assignment, and so that that I'd argue is a the core identification uh, challenge. Now, that helps with the correlated effects. What do you still need, though, to 
do we have after this? No, that's it. Good. Uh, what do you still need, though, to separately identify the endogenous effects, right, that sort of beta parameter before, from the contextual effect? This is a bit of a nuance uh, in the paper. If you match on the social economy status? Uh, well, here there is. So that is, like, that is random, right? And so, um, actually, is there a... We'll go through the etiquette in a little bit. Um, you know, we'll, we'll go through the, the, the etiquette in a, in a little bit. They don't talk about SES here. Uh, do they talk about SES? <laughs> Not really. <coughs> Um, but we can sort of assume, you know, given that everything else is sort of fairly balanced, that presumably uh, pre-characteristics are going to be balanced as well. In, insofar as the people at Dartmouth don't just have higher socioeconomic status in the first place. Uh, I mean, that could be. So that's an external validity issue then. Yeah. Right? That's, that's totally sort of an external validity uh, issue. Although they do, um, you know, there is some heterogeneity, and we'll talk about this in a little bit of like sort of this, this, this table two uh, in a little bit. Uh, let me leave this open, actually, and sort of push on it. Like, what is the core estimating equation? Basically, like, three or four. Equation four, four. That's right. Yeah. Right? But so we can sort of see how... Four kind of collapses together um, GPA characteristics. Now, why is one regressing, right? Individual I's GPA on ACA, right? Like sort of academic background. Why is one regressing it on ACA as opposed to your neighbor's GPA? Yeah, yeah, but why is one, why, it, so which, which is our preferred specification? Maybe I'll put it that way. What should we, we care about how someone does at Dartmouth, right, their GPA. What do we want that to be a function of? Intelligence. Intelligence, sure, but this is a pure effects, right, sort of story. Um, so maybe the intelligence of one's roommate, right? Do, you, do we have measures on intelligence, though? The, if you retain the previous specification where the neighbor's GPA is on the right-hand side, you don't know whether it's flowing from left to right or right to left both ways. So if you collect it in one side, you are freed up from that simultaneous. It's a reduced form reverse, in this case. Between That's those right. two problems, either simultaneity or reverse causality. Precisely, right? Um, the GPA, you know, sort of simply regressing this now on uh, GPA as well is still subject to what type of concern? Or it could also be driven by what type of effect? Reverse causality. Uh, some reverse causality, but you could think of it as, um, yeah, so yes, reverse causality, but also contextual effects. Right? Let's say, you know, you are both, you've both been randomly assigned to a, to a dorm room, and one happens to be right next to the stairwell, right, that room, and another room happens to be all the way at the end of the corridor. The stairwell is just noisy all the time. You get woken up 
all the time, you don't do as well uh, in school. And lo and behold, the person whose you know, room you're sharing it with also doesn't do as well. Does that mean that you know, because your GPA suffers, that is causing the other person's GPA to suffer? No, it's a contextual effect. The reason we're regressing it on academic credentials, and we're both sort of regressing it on the ACA of the own individual, so you know, that's the ceteris paribus, holding constant two individuals with the same academics, right? If we're now exposed to an individual whose roommate had better academics in high school, what is our GPA? These are predetermined covariates, which will not be subject to the contextual effects concerns. So that is actually the only peer effect estimate that exists. Yeah, and Sassarotti is very honest about it. Um, you know, the last paragraph on page 691, where we have specifications one through four, says, I also report results from the OLS regression of I's GPA on J's GPA. These coefficients are subject to the reflection problem and cannot be interpreted as causal, right? But the results do show the degree of correlation of roommates' outcomes, right? Um, and in order, actually, we have to place some structural properties on those parameters in order to identify them as, uh, in order to identify them as causal, right? So that's the core estimating equation. Um, what results, if any, then help explain this effect? Right, because let's walk through the etiquette. Is the question clear? Right? Are the uh, you know are the identification concerns clear? Right? They articulate. I mean, it's in the title, right? Uh, pure effect with random assignment, right? Like right in the title. I'm a big fan of not you know making your reader guess. Uh, and we were talking about, we're going to be going over some like, just classic papers. And this is what I kind of love about doctoral seminars. Like, you read the greats, and you still like, rip them apart. Uh, you're like, oh, this is garbage. How did this get published? And then you know, we should have a little bit of humility as well. Um, this is how science advances. It's kind of amazing. You know, the papers that are going to be coming out in 20 years from now are going to look back at some contemporary work and think, my goodness, we didn't know anything. But hey, you know, we continue to stand. You know, knowledge is cumulative. Um, but uh, the title is sort of very, very clear as to, uh, as to what it's doing. Um, so let's go through the tables then, right? Is the, does the table structure uh, make sense? What does table one do? Like, what is the goal? You know, this is going to be something else that we're going to develop in this class, you know, one's table strategy. What is it that one's trying to achieve uh, with these data? If you are talking about... Um, you know, sort of student outcomes for individuals at Dartmouth, you want to see or to see what these data look like, right? And so just sort of basic descriptions. Not only does this uh, provide, you know, sort of insight uh, as to, you know, how GPA varies across, uh, you know, one's four years as an undergrad, it also demonstrates just how rich these data are, right? So it allows one really, even though there's random assignment, you can do a lot of balance tests on covariates to show that, these really are sort of orthogonal across, uh, you know, sort of across individuals. So that's table one. One question. Yes. So high school class rank incoming is 993 observations, right? As compared to 1589 other observations. Yes. So that means some data is missing. Yes. So ultimately regression, if we include this particular variable, then I'll be doing regression only on 993 observations. Yeah. Right. 
So when you show descriptives, should you remove all rest of the observations and then show descriptives or? Uh, no, I think that's fine. Uh, you know, you, you have, uh, you want to make sure, you know, if your results hang on high school uh, class rank, you want to show them that all of your other results also hold for that 993 subsample, right? That that 38% that's missing, uh, or pardon that 62%, right? They do have a dummy in here, right? Um, right, the variable right below is just sort of a dummy if, uh, if those data are missing. You'd want to show that there's nothing special about that, um, you know, uh, about those missing observations. So the question was whether or not you show descriptives for the show for the missing observations. Uh, like the remaining for the missing? Yeah. Uh, well, they are showing for the missing. I guess so my question was, yeah. like, I have ultimately data for 993 complete yep. data set. Yep. So descriptive should show only 993 observations for all the data points? No, I wouldn't throw out all those data, right? Because I think they're only using uh, class rank for some, uh, you know, for some specifications. That's uh, for part of the, like, um, the academic index that he creates. It's a third of that. It's like the weight of a third. So what would you do in the case where he's not using that? Uh, you would show, uh, you would just, you would drop those observations then. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, uh, it's undefined. Uh, so 1589 and then where's the N on that? Oh, that's actually interesting because it does say N of 1589. So academic index though is different from rank because there is an academic index uh, variable. But that's what the... I think, if I'm understanding it correctly, that's what they're creating by taking the that's, weighted measure. I think that's coming from academic score, though, right, which they have full coverage of. Oh, okay. Which is just above high school rank. Yes. They're nice to, you know, sort of this, like, cardinal, ordinal, uh, you know, kind of type of approach, uh, you know, being the valedictorian at, like, a bad school, uh, you know, different from being you know, in the top 10% of an excellent school, and so, <coughs> I know. I think they show, I don't know if they have correlations between the two, but I imagine they're going to be, you know, kind of correlated. Um, but yeah. You know, if you have, you know, if you don't have sort of complete coverage on, uh, right, like drinking beer in the past year, they also don't have, you know, entire coverage uh, on that. Uh, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't throw out the rest of the observations that you have very, very rich, you know, data on. Uh, unless that is the covariate, like that matters. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't lose almost forty percent of your uh, of your sample for that. So um, we then just see you know sort of distribution of freshmen in your GPA, right? You want to sort of show this is just the first figure. There's actual variation in the covariate of interest. Uh, if there's no variation, you're probably not going to pick up a whole lot. Table two then just shows you know this pretreatment characteristics, right? Regressed on your roommates, and if there was some selection. Um, these, you know, these would, these would correlate with one another, right? And so this is sort of a nice way just to show that you know there really isn't all too much um, sort of selection. If anything, you know, maybe a bit of negative selection uh, on some of these on some of these covariates, right? Uh, which also is probably just mean reversion, right? Um, is that what you said? You say mean reversion? Or? Okay, yeah, but probably just mean reversion. Um, okay, right. So that's sort of a nice setup. Think about again. This is the paper. You have sort of rich data. You're arguing there's random assignment. Like, what do you say? He's like, well, Dartmouth told me there's random assignment, so off we go. Like, no, no, no. Prove it to us that there's actually random assignment. Uh, maybe there's a fair amount of bartering uh, or, you know, sort of horse trading that takes place. And then table three, boom, your main results. Right? So you're aggressing 
fresh year, uh, you know, freshman year GPA on your roommate's GPA, is that a causal effect? Nope. You're regressing it on your own academic score yourself. That should be positively, you know, sort of correlated. That at least gives you some growth kind of measure. Uh, and is there anything on high school academic score of roommate? No. This is basically why this paper now goes through everything else to sort of try to recover an effect because there's no main effect. Which kind of sucks, right? <laughs> sort of initially, I'm sure you guys are like, huh. Like, that would have been like the prima facie evidence that your high school, like, your roommate's high school scores has a positive effect on you and there's nothing there, right? Uh, so now let's include uh, dorm room fixed effects, specification two, nothing there. Let's look at how you did in your senior year in GPA, nothing there. Haha, -ha. what if your roommate's academic score is in the top 25%? Again, this is just assuming, maybe it's not linear, which is a big assumption. I like, you know, I, I don't love, you know, sort of cont linear continuous variables because I think a lot of the time, um, you know, take a look at sort of inequality, ability, et cetera, like it's highly sort of, uh, uh, highly skewed. Um, when you look at the top, whether or not your roommates, just a dummy, whether or not your roommates is in the top 25%, big positive effect. The admitted category is if you're in the middle 50%, right? Uh, either in the, the, the second or third uh, quartile, and there's no negative effect if the student's in the bottom 25%. That's pretty cool too, right? Um, you know, the question to a certain extent comes from why is there, you know, how do those add up to negative 0.001 uh, in specification one? But we'll kind of like leave that, we'll leave that for now. Um, so that I would, you know, that's a causal effect now, right? Because it's sort of predetermined. Whereas the GPA scores, those can still be, uh, those can still be contextual. Can it be a problem of the efficiency? Uh, the efficiency? When we don't see any effect. Well, this isn't really like an IV estimate, right? Because we have random assignment here. Um, so this is just a sort of a simple reduced form. Um, no, I'd say, I mean, that's a pretty precise zero, right? Um, Negative 0 0.001, standard error 0.001. You're not going to get much more zero than, than that. Like that's pretty convincing. There's nothing. You know, there's nothing there. However, you could have sort of offsetting, you know, offsetting effects, uh, which is why I think he then starts to look into the into the tails of the distribution, um, which which is which is certainly warranted. All right. And so, you know, what results now, if any, help explain uh, this result and. We talked a little bit about uh, this last class about the table two within any paper. And so this is some of my own kind of vernacular that I've developed along with you know, sort of group of co-authors. And you know, it is my belief that every good paper has a strong table one and a strong table two. And what I mean by that is the table one is what shows a causal effect. Right, it kind of like nails the causal effect. Again, I'll use my folksyism, right? You know, so a result that you can hang your hat on, right? You know, that you, you know, is there, is robust, is causal. The table two pushes on that and shows some heterogeneity. And I argue, you know, the table two is what makes a paper interesting. It's where it's like ah, like this is like this is the channel that it's working through, or this is where it really bites. This is where it matters much, much more. Table twos, though, without a well-identified table one, not important, right? Like, who cares about heterogeneity of a result that you're not really sure is there or why it's there or it's not there in a causal fashion? Does Sasserdotti have a table two? Which one do we think? And if so, where might it be? 
Table three? Table three, I'd say, is the table one. Right? Like, that's the first main result. Right? I want to make very clear that people know what I mean by, like, table one. And, like, <laughs> table, one and, table one could be a set of tables as well, right? Yeah. Table two can also sometimes be a set of tables, but it's, like, main result, heterogeneity. Um, and then you show it in a, number of, in a number of sequences, right? So, like, the first table, table three, right? So descriptors are important, but, you know, table one, show us the result, table three uh, comes out. Um, do they push on that then anywhere? Little. <laughs> right? they, they then try to hit this via, um, you know, major division, right? Are there certain types of disciplines that might be more susceptible to uh, pure learning? Important question, right? Interesting to explain. Looking at variation in, across disciplines doesn't matter if you haven't dealt with the contextual and correlated effects, right? But we now want to see where this matters more and less, right? So first, uh, they look through majors. Anything there, really, in table four? What does it tell us? A, it shows us that across disciplines, Individuals are stratified as well, like very nicely balanced, right? Like one ninth almost across every cell, right? So you're actually getting uh, some heterogeneity when individuals are in uh, in different groups. But if you are both in the same, you know, if you're in the humanities and someone else is in the humanities, what's the multiplier? And there, it's basically there's no heterogeneity. Um, Exactly. That's right. So it isn't that you gain, you learn more when someone's different to you, or right, that there's a diversity premium, or that there's a homogeneity premium, which again, maybe ex ante we would have thought, right? If you have sort of two physics students sitting together, you might both do much better because you can have sort of study uh, in your room in your room together. It doesn't appear to be there. They then look at peer effects on social outcomes as potentially some you know type of mechanism. Are you more likely to join uh, a fraternity? And, and Dartmouth. Um, has a very sort of renowned uh, uh, Greek system where there's very high uh, participation of the Greek system. Uh, does anyone recall what the share of that was? Fraternity, sorority, co-ed house. This is to music high. I'm surprised they don't have that in here. Um, but a lot of people drank beer within the past year, 60%. Uh, <laughs> be clear these are undergrads uh, <laughs> um, right and so how do uh, you know how do uh, how do sort of peers sort of influence but these could still all be somewhat contextual right and so I think this is a bit of a, a distraction I think the main table two really emerges in table six right the effect uh, on own freshman GPA what's that for 20, so wait, but that's a house um, but I can't uh, I wonder how they define that. Oh yeah, whether or not you're you're living potentially in the fraternity house, which is very different from being a member of the fraternity, which I'd say participation is even like 75% of Dartmouth. That's just sort of incredibly high. Um, and so again, that might not be the right dimension to look for, you know, variation. You might want to look at uh, whether or not people join the same, you know, sorority or fraternity. But again, is that interesting, right? Like, uh, you know, your classmates, are you more likely to attend a movie together? Yeah, because you know each other now. You have a social bond. I'm not sure this is exactly like 
a revolutionary, you know, kind of kind of insight. Uh, but what do we see here in Table Six? Right. The fact that when you are in the top 25% and your peers in the top 25%, you get a much higher uh, multiplier. Right. However. This again, uh, oh no, this is using academic index, right? So this is, this is uh, effect on own freshman GPA, it's academic index. When, you know, if you are like bottom quartile uh, and you're with someone else who's a slacker, right? Like someone else who's in the bottom quartile, you don't, you don't help each other out, right? Uh, you really don't help each other out. Um, whereas when you are uh, in the bottom quartile, uh, and someone else is in the top quartile, you do much better uh, than you otherwise would have having been matched with, with someone else, right? Um, when you're in the middle 50%, there's nothing there. And when you're in the top 25%, you're naturally going to sort of do much better. It doesn't matter who you're with unless you're with someone who's in the top 25%. Now, again, the extent to which these coefficients are... Oh, no, they do do F-tests here, right? So this is great. We're going to talk a lot about notes as well uh, within, uh, within tables, right? allow a reader to jump into the tables and know exactly what's going on as opposed to saying, hey, go look it up in the, in the paper, right? People won't spend the time to look it up in the paper. Having self-contained tables, I think, is very much a virtue, uh, and I think Sashadari does just a great, uh, a great job here, right? An F-test on, you know, sort of uh, joint equality here is exactly the type of thing that we'd be interested in, like, oh, is this really different? Yes, right? You know, these are, these are different. I would say this is the very interesting sort of table two, that uh, the quality, not only do you learn from people that are around you, but who they are matters disproportionately, right? And then, you know, that's the paper, um, which, which I think sort of does, a, does sort of a very nice, uh, a very nice job of um, both discussing the issues of uh, these reflection concerns, uh, but demonstrating these peer effects. And it's an incredibly heavily, you know, highly cited paper. Had anyone read the paper before? Or heard of it? Uh, good. Well, I'm glad to like introduce you guys to it. If you do want a much more technical treatment, um, you know, this you know sort of collapsing from you know sort of this the, the you know the structural relationship into the reduced form of like three to four in the working paper, you know, is sort of six pages worth of sort of discussion and um, outlines a little bit more of what assumptions one can place on these parameters in order to interpret these GPA effects as causal, but it clearly got scrubbed from the final paper because I don't think it, it added a lot, or it added a lot of volume to the paper without adding that much to the readership. So um, this is another you know sort of strategy. Sometimes it's nice to read earlier working papers uh, of some of these papers because they, they are more verbose and they can be more insightful, um, and so you can find things that you otherwise wouldn't. All right, so that's it. Um, any last questions? Yeah. Are spillover effects very, very different from contextual or period about they ever argue along those lines? What do you think? They could be. They could be. Yeah, uh, they could be. They are related. Um, but it is sort of, it is a different, it is a different, um, no, I, it's, so yeah, it depends on how we sort of think about spillover. We'll talk about spillovers only because that's a subject sort of near and dear to my heart. I think it's misused very frequently. Sometimes spillovers can be sort of like, viewed as like co-production, right? So, you know, it does, you've got a peanut butter sandwich, you have a jelly sandwich, you have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and that is a much better sandwich than the former two. Now, does, you know, peanut butter like spill over to, you know, jelly to create something great? 
I don't know. Like, I don't think it teaches you know, jelly to be better, uh, or vice versa. Uh, that's sort of more of a sort of a co-production type of instance, which quite often the data looks like a spillover, right? When you sort of see two individuals uh, co-produce something, um, you could also have role modeling, right? Um, and I don't think we have a paper in here, but there's a great. Um, someone mentioned the Moretti paper earlier, right? So Enrico Moretti and Alexandra Moss have this great paper in the AER uh, on peer learning, where they basically look at. Uh, check out cashiers, uh, and what's really great about the setting, uh, these cashiers are fully randomized as to which uh, you know aisle they happen to be uh, checking out for, but if you are standing behind someone who's just very quick, you are much, much faster. But it has no impact on the person behind you because you don't see them, right? So it's not just geographic location, right? Because you can make an argument, well, there's just busier places of the supermarket might be where you put your better you know cashiers, logical, but if that's the case, uh, you shouldn't have this asymmetric uh, effect depending on who you can see. Uh, so it's just like a great paper, very sort of like clean setup, but that's role modeling, right? That's not, is that a spillover? To a certain extent, um, but it's resulted in more effort exertion, right? So productivity can increase in a number of different ways. It can be, um, you know, technology augmented, so you just now have a better way of producing something or it can simply come through additional effort, right? When we think about productivity, we tend to just see the output, but we don't see inputs, right? So, you know, there's lots of academics that produce a lot. They also work like 100 hours, you know, a week. And, you know, are they more productive in a classic sense than someone who works 50 hours a week? Not in a classic productivity sense, normalizing, uh, you know, sort of inputs. And so thinking about that um, is going to be important, and we'll come back to that uh, afterwards. But yes, spillovers are certainly related to this. All right, so next week we'll talk about randomization. We'll talk uh, about, um, actually, can I see the syllabus again? I lost it. We'll sort of start with randomization. I think we have mostly harmless chapter three uh, assigned. Good, that's what I wanted to have assigned. I'm glad I did assign it. Um, so we're going to talk about chapter three. It is much longer, and it takes the starting point that randomization really is kind of a bit of a gold standard. But we, it's very difficult to achieve in a number of settings that we care about. Um, and so how do we get as close as possible to, and again, RCTs and sort of randomization field experiments, we're going to kind of, uh, we'll think of field experiments and randomized controlled trials uh, synonymously. You give up a lot as well by, uh, you know, they are not perfect in and of themselves, yeah. but how can we try to get as close as possible to this, to this gold standard? Um, and so let me assign actually... Um, two papers to be uh, discussed. Uh, we have the Bertrand uh, Mullenathan uh, piece. Uh, does that, has anyone read that paper before? Are Emily and Greg more employable than Lakeisha and Jamal? It's like an amazing, amazing paper. Uh, volunteer to lead discussion on that? Not all at once. <laughs> all right. Uh, and then we have this Nick Bloom uh, and co-authors on, you know, does management uh, matter, uh, you know, a massive field experiment on, you know, applying management treatment to textile companies in India. Like, it's just awesome. Um, does anyone want to discuss that paper? Yeah? Perfect. Good. So we have two assignments. We'll talk about those two. Um, the first one was Bertrand? The first one was the Bertrand and Mullenathan. Yeah, those are the two applied uh, kind of papers. The other will be more background. Uh, we have this Andrew Gelman uh, post, which is good. Does anyone know Andrew Gelman? 
He's a, yeah, right, so he's a statistician uh, at Columbia and a very prolific uh, blogger, has a great blog on, you know, kind of causal inference and statistics writ large uh, within the social sciences, and uh, yeah, I, I encourage you guys to sort of browse it, read it, it's always a good read. It can be a bit snarky, but uh, that's, yeah, that's what a good blog is all about. Um, good. I've got to run. Thanks, everyone, and um, yeah, look forward to seeing everyone.